In the new birth, God provides something that is not naturally there. And that's how you have the new birth. The new birth is not about developing what you already have and just putting it in the right order and you have the new birth. That's not a miracle. You with me? It's not working with the tools you already have at hand. You just align them a certain way or you think a certain way or you educate yourself a certain way and you've accomplished the new birth. That is not a miracle. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Seven miracle sons. Seven miracle sons. And what we're looking at is a particular theme that is the most important theme listed for us in the New Testament. Most are most uh, important doctrine or most important teaching. And when I talk about it as a doctrine or a teaching, I don't mean it's, a, it's just a, a theory or an understanding. It's actually a teaching about a particular reality. And the most important teaching in the New Testament, uh, I'm not going to ask you for a guess, but uh, you might be thinking already, I wonder what it, what it is. It's the new birth. By far, that's what the New Covenant, that's what the New Testament is really all about. It is the new birth, which is the life of Christ. Today we want to look at the new birth and the story of the new birth as told in a prophecy in the scriptures that is different to how we normally think of prophecy. We're going to look at a particular prophecy today that uh, paints for us a picture of the Messiah, a prophecy that points forward to the Messiah, who is the active agent or the active the one through whom the new birth occurs, and the one whose life we receive at the new birth. And this prophecy, like I said, is, is different to the regular uh, form of prophecy that we're familiar with, that one prophet writes what will happen or receives a vision. This is actually a prophecy that uh, God has written and weaved in the actual experience of a particular group of people, a prophecy that spans thousands of years. And the combination of this prophecy is actually uh, the Messiah. Uh, when God created all of humanity in Adam, God, by His Spirit, miraculously caused the dust to come to life. When He breathed into Adam, the breath of life. That was a miracle, an impartation of life. Not just to Adam, the human being only, but to all of humanity. The life that God imparted to Adam is the life that we all receive when we are born of our earthly parents. And so uh, the human family was created in this way. And God gave Adam and Eve a very special gift, the gift of procreation, where Adam and Eve could come together and reproduce children who would inherit their very own life that they received uh, from God. And God actually intended for Adam and Eve uh, to use this gift. He told them, be fruitful multiply and fill the earth. It was a gift of life. Now there are instances in the Bible where there are certain individuals who were not able to use this gift of procreation. Interestingly enough, no matter how desperate they were to actually have children, they were unable to have children. A gift that God had given to humanity with no exceptions, with no uh, you know, qualification, Humanity was given this gift, but these individuals were not able to have children. Interestingly enough as well, that uh, we see there were divine interventions from God in those instances that we will look at today for God to cause a miracle and to provide life or to provide a child where normally 
there was no child. And uh, this, uh, this means is very important to keep in mind because God had to work and provide something outside of the natural order of things as it existed and provide a miracle and provide life in order for these people to have, uh, to have children. Amazingly enough, in the scriptures, we have a record of seven instances where there were women unable to bear children. And in those seven instances, God miraculously intervened and provided life supernaturally so that these children could be born. Miracle children. That's why we call the, the, you know, the study seven miracle sons. And it's in the life of these sons that God has weaved actually a prophecy about the ultimate miracle son, his own son, who would one day come. And so we want to look at uh, this picture together and see what we can learn and ultimately see what we can learn in a practical way as far as uh, applying it to the new birth and our experience and our walk with the Lord. So this is just a little summary about this particular prophecy we will examine. So seven Hebrew miracle births that pinpoint the Messiah. The first miracle birth in the scripture, anyone remember? I'm going to be asking some questions as we go along. The first incident where there was a woman who was not able to have a child, a barren woman, where God intervened with a miracle to provide a child to be born. First one? First one chronologically in the Bible. I know you didn't expect a quiz in the first meeting at camp. I, I, I understand that. You've all traveled. You've probably been traveling today, so I might be asking a little bit too much. Okay, let's have a look at it. It's in Genesis 15. Verses 2 to 5. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou, art if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Of course, the story of Abraham and Sarah. The first one, interesting, very important one as well, because it stands as, as a key. Two obstacles here. Not only was Sarah barren, but it actually says it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. What's that mean? She was no longer even producing eggs. If we want to look at the science of it a little bit, okay? Two, two obstacles. She, she was already barren. The eggs that she did produce, she couldn't have children by. There was some problem there. And now she had stopped that altogether. And God told Abram, you're going to have a son out of your own bowels from Sarah, from your own wife. And so uh, God gave them a son. It was a miracle in every sense of the word. Isaac is the first miracle birth. Interesting enough, God had to provide a source of life miraculously, from outside the natural existence of the circumstances at hand in order for this child to be born. This is not a coincidence. This is actually a type, as we shall see when we go along. Genesis 21, verses 1 to 4. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken, for Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abram circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now, Abraham, a hundred years old, has this son Isaac. And God had a purpose to fulfill. 
regardless of the physical circumstances that seemed insurmountable. Important lesson to remember, when we meet a situation or trouble or something that seems cannot be worked out, God can work things out in his own way, unexpectedly. It was, it was a hopeless outlook. You know, when God, when Christ visited Abraham, you remember? And he said, you'll have a child. What did Sarah do? She laughed, right? What was that laugh? Unbelief. She didn't believe it would happen. God performed this miracle. He is the God of miracles. This birth is a miraculous birth. Important to keep that point in mind. Okay, next one. Who's the next miracle birth in the scriptures? Okay, thank you. Not far. Isaac had the very same experience his own father had with his wife. Genesis 25, 21. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife. That's Rebecca. Because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Interesting that these people are men of God, right? Faithful people of God. You would think, you know, why would they have this problem? God was working on something. Now, you read this text here and you don't get the, the impact that, it should, that, that should hit us when we read this text. Because you read this text and you think, oh, Isaac found out that his wife was barren. So he prayed for her and then she had a baby, right? Maybe next week or maybe next month. Actually, you'll find that Isaac prayed for a very long time. Isaac was married at 40 years old. He had Esau and Jacob when he was 60. How long did he pray for? 20 years. She was barren for 20 years. He prayed and then obviously they wanted children. It was very important in those days, you know, to get children. And uh, she wasn't having children for 20 long years. You know, sometimes we can go through a trying circumstance and experience and it doesn't make sense why we're going through it. You know, when we're God's people and when we're serving him and we're doing the right thing and all the other people are doing the wrong thing and we're the ones in trouble. This is not the first time that this happens. Isaac had that. So he prayed and God performed the supernatural and he, uh, he gave them a, a child. Well, he gave them two children. Uh, Jacob is one of two, but this is the second instance of a miraculous birth due to divine intervention. Supernatural providence where God provided life in a special way where normally it was not possible to have a child. These are very telling details. And in this sense, Jacob, of course, we know, came to be known by what name? Israel. Israel is, of course, God's favorite people. In this sense, it makes a little bit more sense when God told Pharaoh, let Israel, my firstborn, go. Israel was God's child in a very real and miraculous sense. They weren't just born randomly. They were born, Jacob, Isaac and Jacob, by a divine miracle from God for a purpose and for a reason. We're going to look at the parallels a little bit when we revisit the, the stories of each one uh, in a few minutes. But uh, Jacob holds a very unique place in uh, being a special type for Christ as well. That's what we'll see in the stories of these seven children, these seven men. They all typify Christ in special ways. All right, third one. Who's the third one? Next in line. I know because I have the notes here, but do you know? Samuel is coming, but there's someone before Samuel. Next one was actually in the experience of Jacob, 
one of Jacob's children. Rachel, exactly. Genesis 29, 31. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And so Rachel didn't like that. Genesis 30, verse 1 and 2. And when Rachel saw that she bare no, Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. That's how important this was. And that's a rightful thing to, to want, right? God said to Adam and Eve, he gave them the gift of procreation. But it's being withheld here in these cases for whatever reason. But God is overruling for good. He's painting a picture. Verse 2, And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in God's stead who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? This is what can I do? This is your problem, not mine. What, you think I'm God? And God actually intervenes. And God does perform a miracle. And uh, a child is born. Genesis 30, 22 to 24. God remembered Rachel and God hearkened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bare a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. Again, God touched her by a miracle. She conceived this is miracle child or the miracle birth number three. And the fourth one is who? Here's the story, Judges 13, 2 and 3. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. That's the circumstances surrounding the birth of Samson, if you recall. Uh, and of course, <clears throat> this prophecy uh, was fulfilled, and she bare a son, and she called his name Samson. Samson was a very unique case, as we will see a little later. Uh, very, very interesting and strange story, as far as Samson was concerned. He actually is part of this unique group of miracle children. And so he actually typifies Christ. You wouldn't think of Samson as typifying Christ, but he actually does. His birth is one, for sure, but not only that, actually very important inst instances in his life also typify the Savior. And so, this barren woman conceived, and she bore a son, and it was Samuel, and, uh, and it was Samson, sorry. And now we come to Samuel, really keen to get to Samuel, are we? Now we come to Samuel. He is number five, the fifth miracle birth. First Samuel 1, 10 and 11. Speaking of Hannah here, it says she was bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. God hears her prayer. I think we know the story. She was in the temple at the time, and the priest comes and wonders what she was drinking. And he says, God will hear her prayer. He answers her prayer, and she has a child. And of course, his name is Samuel. 1 Samuel 1, 19 says, And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Whereof it came to pass, wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come, about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Again, a divine miracle. The normal circumstances, the natural obstacles were overcome. God provided life. And this child was born to his parents. And she named him 
with a name to signify that he was an answer to prayer. And then she did a very strange thing. She actually gave him away to the Lord to live and be brought up with the priest in the temple. Isn't that interesting? For someone who wanted a child so much, and that's what she said in her prayer, if you give me a child, I will give him back to you. Amazing. Again, very telling aspect here as well. Number six. Now, number six, I'm not going to help you out now because you confuse me with the order a little bit. <laughs> You're going to tell me who's the sixth miracle child. This is a hard one. I'll tell you right up. And it's not John the Baptist. There's someone before that. Number six. It's a little obscure story in the Old Testament of a little miracle that is not any less, you know, it's not more little, or it's not less significant than the ones we read. It's just there's not much detail about it. So we don't think of it this way. Any thoughts? The woman of Shunem, thank you. The Shunemite woman. Everyone knew that, right? You just need a little reminder. The Shunemite woman. Uh, we don't have a name for this young, young boy. Remember the story, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 14. This is the prophet Elisha, who, uh, just backing up a little bit, he would visit uh, the location, and then they decide to build a little shelter for him. And uh, he wants to repay the favor. And he asks, what do they need? Some favor or anything? And they don't, they don't want anything. He says, he says, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi, that's his servant, answered, verily she has no child and her husband is old. And he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. And he said, about this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. Kind of tells you a little bit of her faith in what he promised, right? Did she believe him? She didn't even, she was so, her hope was so squashed. She didn't even think to ask for a child from the prophet of God. It wasn't even on her mind to request to have a child. That's how impossible that was for her, right? You get that from the conversation they're having. So that's so much so that he tells her, this is what will happen. She says, no, 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 don't, don't, don't play games with me. Don't lie to your handmaid. And so <clears throat> this woman, we're told in uh, verse 14, 2 Kings 4, 17, sorry. And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. Even though she did not really believe, even though she thought that might be too hard to ask, God overruled and still worked a miracle to perform this act and she has this child very interesting story very interesting case actually among them uh, all these seven maybe they had prayed for a child earlier and it never happened and so they must have come to the conclusion it must be god's will or it's never going to happen her husband's getting old that's it they've closed that chapter and they've moved on so to speak and here comes the prophet and upsets this plan and uh, she has a child Miracle child number seven is the one recorded in the New Testament that we know as John the Baptist. Luke chapter one, verse five and seven to seven. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they both were now well stricken in years. Important details recorded. 
Faithful people of God keep getting afflicted with this problem. And we have seven instances recorded for us in the scriptures of the existence of this problem and a miraculous resolution. Elizabeth and Aaron, uh, and uh, daughter of Aaron and Zechariah. Now these people were good people, right? Faithful people, it says here, blameless as far as walking in the ordinances of the Lord. Of course, what happens one time when Zechariah was in the temple, Luke 1 verse 13, but the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So they were praying for it, right? They wanted a child. They desired a child. Nothing wrong with desiring a gift that God had freely given to all humanity. But you don't have it. These people didn't have it. And of course, we're told, Luke 1, 57, Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son, and of course, they named him John. Seven miracle children. Interesting, right? If you know anything about numbers in the Bible, you know the number seven is a very significant number. Uh, you kind of pick up that it might be God's favorite number or something. He uses it a lot, especially in prophecy, especially in the book of Revelation. There are a lot of sevens, but not just in the book of Revelation. Here we see a different kind of prophecy, a prophecy written in the lives of these seven Hebrew boys who were miraculously born across the span of hundreds of years. And they, will all, they were all actually pinpointing to the ultimate miracle child that would come. Of course, who's that? It's Christ. Christ's birth was also a miracle, no less of a miracle. It's actually a greater miracle that was typified in these seven miracles of special birth where God provided life and intervened. This special son who would be born is mentioned in Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is the ultimate miracle child that will be born. God would again intervene with a special miracle and bring about the birth of his own son into the human family to be all these things for us, Savior. Now, this verse confuses some people. I just want to mention this while we're here. This verse is speaking about Christ's work as Savior when he would come as a man. And these titles have uh, thrown some people off as far as the issue of the Trinity, particularly, uh, because Jesus is here called the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father. You heard about this verse in that context? I want to tell you right off, this verse has absolutely nothing to do with any Trinity. This is purely a messianic prophecy because these titles are actually prophetic that Christ will be called by these titles in the future. Correct? It's not things that he had in the past. He says his name when he's born and he will accomplish salvation and his name will be called as a result of his accomplishments as savior. He will earn these names, these titles. Why is he referred to as the everlasting father? Are you looking to take your Bible study to the next level? Do you want to learn how to apply the Word of God in your daily life and share it more effectively with others? My Bible Academy is your online Bible school, offering a free, comprehensive, and dynamic program designed to deepen your understanding and engagement with the Bible. Take the next step in your spiritual growth and enroll to start a course at My Bible Academy 
today. The courses are designed to equip you with the tools and knowledge you need to share your faith with others. Visit nadamansour.com to enroll and start your learning journey today. That's nadamansour.com. See you there. Why is he referred to as the Everlasting Father? Thank you. The reason is very simple. is because he comes as the second Adam. And as the second Adam, he will have the ability to impart life and have children. Not physical children, spiritual children. So he becomes the father of those that are born of him, as we shall see. So we saw the physical miracle of birth for all these seven children, signifying Christ, who also himself will be able to have spiritual children. So he will be their everlasting father. And as far as him being called the mighty God, just so no one thinks I kind of skipped that and didn't want to talk about it. Uh, this is in reference to the fact that even though he comes as a man, he still remains and retains his divine nature as the son of God. His divine nature is what qualifies him to be called God by the title God or by, uh, you know, by that word. And God is used many times in the scripture in ways to signify the God of the Bible, but also in ways to signify the nature that someone has. Jesus is in the category of the God being. In other words, he has the God nature. It doesn't mean that he is God the Father or that he is uh, interchangeable with God the Father, but it does mean that he has the nature of his Father, which is the God nature. So he's referred to as God in reference to his nature. And of course, the other titles as well. But this is as far as the points that people sometimes, you know, find a little bit uh, confusing. Now, this time, uh, Christ would be born not to a barren woman, Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This time, there will be no human intervention. It's not going to be like, you know, the stories we read, that they couldn't have children, but then they prayed and God performed the miracle and the man, you know, and the woman got together and they conceived. No, this time, this is a virgin. There is no other human player. God is going to perform a great, the greatest miracle. And so, the promised Messiah was to be God with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And he's the fulfillment of those prophetic types in the seven miracle births that we looked at briefly in their order. So when he comes, his conception, his birth, his life would be greater and more supernatural than all of these seven that preceded him, that typified him. And the fascinating thing about this is God foretold amazing accomplishments and instances in the life of the Messiah. He foretold that in the lives of these seven Hebrew boys that we looked at. And we're going to look at that. And the interesting, interesting thing about this is this is only really visible in hindsight. Now that all this, all this has happened, this is history for us, we can look back and see the parallels. It was uh, very difficult to see it the other way. But God was weaving this long-term picture in the stream of humanity where the story of his son would be foretold in the lives of these seven miracle boys. Very, very interesting. So uh, to, or to recap uh, what we found, we'll just revisit each one quickly and see the perils and draw the perils. And I find this really, really uh, amazing. And then we'll bring it all together as to how it applies for us today. So the first one was Isaac. Now Isaac was promised 
and named by God, if you remember. Is that of significance? That's what happened with Christ, right? That's what we were told. I'm just recapping some details from the stories. I'm not going to put all the references and read all the verses. If you're not too familiar with it, you can refresh and go back and read the story later on if you'd like. But before we go on other points, the main incident that we know of in the life of Isaac that directly links to the Savior is what incident? When he was taken to the mountain to be sacrificed, right? But that's not the only thing. Usually that's the most outstanding thing, and that's a very, very good one. That's a very strong parallel. That's what we usually focus on. But there are other details, but that's definitely the key component. Isaac stands as a symbol for the sacrifice. Isaac was actually the first one to be circumcised on the eighth day. The first child to enter into the covenant signified by circumcision. His father was circumcised as an old man. Uh, he's the first one. Significant detail as well as far as Christ is concerned. Uh, so yeah, of course, he's the first one to enter the covenant from birth. He's the only begotten son of promise. The book of Hebrews talks about him as the only begotten son of Abraham. He's the only begotten son of promise. As some people, you know, argue about that or they're a little bit confused. They say, well, Abraham had other children. So Isaac wasn't his only begotten son. Therefore, only begotten when applied to Christ does not mean literally begotten or only born. Well, Abraham and Sarah only had one son. That's who Paul was dealing with in the book of Hebrews. He's not dealing with other wives and other children that Abraham had. He's only dealing with the son or the child of promise. It was an only begotten son. It was Isaac. Very clear link between him and Christ. He was to be offered, of course, as a sacrifice, as Christ would be. Isaac carried the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain. You remember that? Jesus, of course, carried his cross. Isaac called out his, to his father, where is the sacrifice? Christ called out to his father when he was on the cross. And he was, he felt, and he was, you know, uh, as far as he was concerned, forsaken. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God held back from his son. <clears throat> the whole process or the ordeal with uh, Isaac and uh, Abraham took how long? Three days. Remember that? The location that this happened was referred to uh, or called by Abraham Jehovah Jireh, which is Hebrew, which means God will provide. Remember what the name of the mountain was? Mount Moriah, right? Or the mountains of Moriah, to be very accurate. You know that that's exactly the same location that years later, Christ ended up on the cross? You realize that? So the location was significant. Abraham was standing at the location where years later, God's own son would come and take the place that Isaac was typifying and signifying and actually die. And the difference would be this. And that's why the Bible says Abraham saw Christ's day and he was glad. The difference would be this, where with Isaac, you know, the angel stopped Abraham at the last minute and he didn't die. With Christ, there was no one to stop. No one to hold, you know, the knife, so to speak, uh, back. And so he called the place Jehovah Jireh, or God will provide. Isaac, after that experience, after, uh, as we saw later on, he marries a bride from a far country. Christ has that as well, right? The bride of Christ is from a far country. He left heaven to come to earth. It's a bride chosen for him by his father. If you remember, he sent his servant to choose. Isaac did not choose his bride. Isaac married the lady who showed up. Right? 
He trusted that his father and the God of his father would lead and guide and the circumstances would be that the lady who came is God's intended wife for him. And that was the case. The father, of course, uh, you know, uh, is symbolized here. This is the whole bride and Christ and the father aspect is symbolized in this particular story. The bride accepts him before seeing him. Isn't that right? Here is uh, uh, Rebecca over there. She never met Isaac. She decides, yes, he will be her husband. She didn't even know what he looked like. That's the bride of Christ on earth. We accept him before we see him. Interesting. And then through his intercession, his barren wife has children, as we saw. And uh, that's how we can have spiritual children as well, as far as the church, the bride of Christ is concerned. Some interesting parallels in the life of Isaac. The next one was, you remember? Jacob, right? Jacob's uh, outstanding feature is that he is the man who is known as Israel. The one who overcame. Jacob, uh, Jacob's original name actually means the supplanter or the deceiver. Uh, doesn't seem like a very fitting uh, aspect for Christ, but Jacob was to become a strong or a mighty nation. He was actually chosen before his birth, the prophecy said, if you recall. Chosen prior to his birth, he would become a great nation. He was to be given the birthright inheritance. He would inherit the firstborn's share. That's what Jacob was, even though he came out uh, second. Jacob took his brother's place through deception. Christ takes our place and accomplishes redemption. There was a replacement there. Another little interesting parallel. Uh, Jacob escaped his home to avoid death. Christ experienced that when he was a little boy, right? Jacob dreams about the Messiah as a ladder between heaven and earth. Christ reveals himself to Jacob in a very marked manner, very encouraging manner, very encouraging dream. Jacob had a special place. He was a type for Christ. Christ revealed himself to him. He connects, you know, he connected heaven and earth with a ladder. That's what Christ is. That's what Christ would be. Through this divine miracle, Christ would link heaven with earth. He revealed that to Jacob to encourage him. And Jacob uh, represents that. And this is an, if, if you ever had a hard time, as Jacob was, you know, he didn't know if he was going to meet his family again. His brother was out to kill him. He's homeless. He's escaping in the wilderness. And he is totally in total despair. He feels guilty because he deceived his father. His brother wants to kill him. And he has no idea what's going to happen. And he falls into this, you know, depressed sleep, so to speak. The outlook is all black, bleak. And God encourages him with this dream. So take courage if you think the outlook is bleak in your particular circumstance. Remember what happened with Jacob, God turned this man into a very, very victorious person. In anguish of death, he has the struggle with Christ. He doesn't let go and he becomes a victor. He becomes Israel, right? His name is changed. God turned the circumstances to something miraculously positive. And uh, the Bible actually tells us that he sees God face to face and he is preserved. He suffered many sorrows. In his life, Jesus was known as a man of sorrows. He ends up having 12 children who are called by his name, right? That's Jacob. Jesus did that as well. He goes to Egypt to avoid death from a famine later on. Egypt becomes, interestingly enough, 
a safe haven, a place to preserve the life of Israel and the nation of Israel. And that's exactly what happened in the story of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Matthew links the two. Where he talks, I call my, he says, uh, Jesus came from, back from Egypt to Israel in fulfillment of the prophecy, I have called my son out of Egypt. Talking about Israel. That's Jacob right here. He went in one man. He came out a mighty nation. God is called by his name. He's the God of Jacob. You have the, the, the three uh, patriarchs. He's not just the God of Jacob, but he's known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the New Testament, God the Father is referred to as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jacob has all these parallels with Christ. The next one is Joseph. Joseph, you can do a whole series on Joseph's life alone and the parallels that he has with Christ. There are lots. There are over a hundred. I'm not going to go through a hundred now. I'll just go through some highlights. But there are many, many parallels, particularly in the life of this man, the life of Joseph, that parallel Christ. And the reason why we're going through this is I don't want you to miss all these details, all these instances that the scriptures bothers to record about the lives of these men. They had many other experiences that are not recorded. But the experiences that are recorded, we see amazing parallels between them and the life of Christ when we just cast our eyes backwards in hindsight and look at them as one group. And then you realize the absolute genius of God and how he just is painting this amazing portrait through the stream and experience of humanity in the lives of these Hebrew men too fill a picture about Christ. That then Christ comes and brings the reality of all of these things that were typified, of course. Uh, Joseph was the favorite of his father. Christ is God's beloved son. Uh, Joseph had his brothers hate him and plot his death. Jesus came to his own. His own received him not. Joseph has had a dream that his brethren would ultimately bow down to him. Remember that? And uh, that's similar with Christ as well. Uh, he was betrayed. He was sold by his brethren. He suffers strong temptation, but is an overcomer. He's jailed innocently for the sin of another. Jesus took our place, even though he was innocent. God released him from jail and exalted him above all others. Isn't that right? That's what happened to Christ. There are lots. You know, it's interesting. We look at the stories, you know, to, to look at the parallels. Look at the details that the Bible bothers to record. There is actually a reason. He was a provider of food for all nations. Physical food. Uh, Joseph said that God foresaw the events that would happen and he sent him to be a provider of life or a preserver of life. Egypt became the source of the preser uh, preserving, through Joseph, the preserving of life, not just for Jacob and his family, but for people at the time. Christ spiritually stands in the same place. In the heart of Egypt, this world, sin, Christ is the provider of life. Amazing parallels between uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph and Christ. Uh, Joseph was publicly known in Egypt when he was 30 years old. When he was, you know, began to be publicly known. Uh, when his brothers visit him, his brothers don't recognize him in his exalted station. Only later on do they actually recognize him and come to acknowledge him. He forgives his brethren, of course, for what they did. Christ 
said at the cross or on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What was meant for evil was turned for good by God. The selling of Joseph, the deception on, on his poor father and on the horrible circumstance, very, very dramatic story, the story of Joseph, ended up being for good, great good that nobody could foresee at the time. The plotting and the betrayal of Christ that was meant for evil to destroy the Son of God ended up for good, for great good. And finally, this interesting detail, jo uh, Jacob, Joseph's father, relocates to where his son is now ruler, to Egypt, to live with his son. Isn't that right? Does that have any uh, significance? We're told that the new Jerusalem is going to be where? Here, where the Son of God came and accomplished the great plan of salvation. Uh, interestingly enough, if you even read the, the blessing that Jacob bestows on his children, if you read the blessing uh, upon Joseph, uh, there are amazing parallels there. It's, it's almost descriptive of Christ and what's going on there. But let's go on. Samson is the next one. How does Samson typify Christ? Well, you know, honestly, we would all condemn Samson to hell if, we're, if it were not for his name being mentioned in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, I believe. The guy was just, didn't have it together, even though he was richly blessed, right? He just loved women a little bit too much, and he just kept playing around. And, and, and it's a tragic story, the story of Samson. God miracle birth, God blessed him with supernatural physical strength, and he seemed to just use God's blessings, uh, you know, squander them. But Samson is in this special group, whether we like it or not. He's in this special group. He is a type of Christ. And even his experiences, bad as they are, he still typifies Christ. Samson is actually a very encouraging story for those of us who might find ourselves in a similar circumstance where we just keep messing up to the point where we feel God must give up on us. So we give up on ourselves. You know what I'm talking about? Samson uh, is a very encouraging story as far as that's concerned. Samson's birth was announced to his mother by an angel, as we read. That's what happened with Mary. He was dedica dedicated to God from his birth. He was a Nazarite. It was a vow. Interesting enough, when he came on the scene, Israel was in apostasy under the power of another nation. That's when he was born. That's when he came on the scene. He was dedicated to God from birth, and he was supernaturally strong. He was the strongest man physically. Christ was that spiritually. Isn't that right? He accomplished what no man ever accomplished, the defeat of sin and Satan. So Christ is represented there. Samson was also, uh, you know, inc inc incident in his life as he killed a lion. Uh, and he gave a parable as a result of that. He slew the strongest and produced the sweetest result. The uh, Christ defeated the devil who goes about as a roaring lion and produced a sweet outcome. The captives of Satan become the redeemed of Christ. Uh, Samson also uh, at the time served as a judge of Israel and a judge at the time as, uh, as such, he was a deliverer of Israel from their enemies. And there were a number of uh, instances where he did that kind of sporadically. He was a little bit more busy with other, other things. He was rejected and betrayed by his brethren, if you recall. 
And, you know, the Philistines said, we're going to destroy you unless you hand Samson over. So what do they do? They go and grab him and they hand him over. And he was their deliverer. Uh, he ended up being betrayed by a very close companion. And uh, he was mocked before his death. Remember when they brought him, he was blind. And they brought him in to entertain uh, the guests at the party. And he was mocked before his death. They were gloating over his apparent defeat. His enemies were. He ended up sacrificing himself to destroy the enemies of his people. Self-sacrifice. That's what Samson did. Before that happened, we know that uh, they took his eyes out. Remember that? When he was in jail? Uh, interesting uh, little detail. I know this is not in scriptures, this is in the Zara of Ages. We're told that Christ could not see through the portals of the tomb. Remember reading that in the Zara of Ages? The outlook was bleak as far as Christ was concerned. And as a result of Samson's death, he actually accomplished a greater result than his life, the Bible says. He killed more of God's enemies at the time through his death than through his life. Christ's death accomplished the success and defeat of Satan completely. The success of his mission and the defeat, complete defeat of Satan. The next one is Samuel. Samuel was a very interesting character. He was not just a judge of Israel, but he was also a prophet and he was also a priest. Very interesting roles that Christ also fulfills. Uh, there are also amazing insights there. And uh, he foretold some aspects of the life of Christ and some of the things that he experienced. For example, his birth was also announced in advance. He was consecrated to God all his life. Served in the temple, right? He was a Nazarite. Little detail we can sometimes forget. Samuel was actually a Nazarite. He was vowed to the Lord. And he served in the house of the Lord from an early age. Kind of reminds you when Christ at an early age was found in the temple with the learned men and the priests. He grew up serving amidst wicked priests. Remember the sons of Eli? They were wicked. This is where Samuel had grown up. Christ was in a similar circumstance. The spiritual leaders at the time were not occupying the position that God truly wanted of them. God spoke to him when, still he, was, uh, when he was still as a child, and he was in favor. The Bible actually describes Samuel as being in favor with God and man. Same for Christ. He traveled around Israel to judge them. And to judge them doesn't mean to condemn them. It means to instruct them and to settle their issues and their problems by revealing to them God's will and God's mind on the matter that was at hand, whatever was troubling them. That's what Christ did, traveled about Israel doing good. He judged Israel, delivered them from their enemies through prayer. Christ was a man of prayer. He was an intercessor for Israel as Christ was. And he ended up being rejected by his people. And in rejecting him, they were rejecting God. Remember that? And Samuel was really upset because the people came and told him, we want a king. And he was really upset. He took it personally because he did all these things for Israel. And they come and tell him, we want a king. We don't want your children to rule. And God told him, Samuel, they're not, they're not rejecting you. They're actually rejecting me. Rejected by his people. Uh, the next one, number six, was the Shunammite's son, the Shunammite's woman's son. We don't have a name for this young man, but we have one outstanding incident in his life that directly parallels an incident in the life of Christ. And what's that? 
this young boy one day was in the field with his father and it was a little bit too hot. He had sunstroke. He ended up dying. The prophet Elisha comes and he resurrects him. Remember the story? He raises him from the dead. These are the verses. 2 Kings 4, 32-33. When Elisha was coming to the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. And he went in therefore and shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. And then verse 35. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. You have a child, a miraculous birth child who dies and is raised back to life. Doesn't need a genius to figure that one out. Christ, of course, fulfills that. And this nameless boy, that we don't have his name, in a sense also represents how Christ's name, uh, his enemies wanted to obliterate the name of Christ. They wanted to wipe it out so nobody would know, nobody would think about, nobody would talk about, or even accept this Jesus of Nazareth. Their plan failed. Christ is Lord today. John the Baptist is the seventh one. Now, John the Baptist holds a very unique position in those seven miracle children. Why is that? Because he's the connecting link. He's the one that actually basically hands over and pinpoints the Messiah. He over, his life and the Messiah's life overlap, and he points to Christ as the promised fulfillment, the miraculous uh, <laughs> lamb that would take away the sin of the world. John the Baptist's position is very, very unique. Uh, not only was he a type, but he was the forerunner of Christ. He's the one that prepared the way for Christ. Very fitting for him to be the last member of this special group to end up being the one who is the forerunner for Christ. Little interesting detail, right? Of that particular group that began with Isaac. And here is John. John was full of the Spirit from when he was in the womb, we're told. Christ was the first to be born of the Spirit in that manner. And we're going to look at that a little bit uh, as well in more detail as we go through this weekend, but that's an important detail not to be missed. What John signified and how Christ was actually born, that he was born of the Spirit. John was also a Nazarite, interestingly enough, and uh, he was also named before his birth. He was taught of God. He was often in the wilderness. He was a, a preacher, you know, of righteousness. He was a prophet. He's told, we're told he was the greatest prophet and a preacher of righteousness. That's what Christ was. And he reproved sin and taught repentance. That was the message of John. As a forerunner of Christ, of course, well, that fits perfectly because Christ fulfilled that and took it to the greater reality. He was a forerunner, of course, of the Messiah, as we said. He happened to actually baptize the Messiah. He baptized Christ. Very, very important incident there where they actually met. And John, you know, and Christ right there in the water. And he baptized Christ. Uh, and the Father says, this is my beloved son. Amazing. If you, if you have all this in mind, that story is the culmination of this amazing prophecy where now John directly pinpoints Christ. He died innocent, of course, and, oh, too fast. Uh, he died not having committed any wrong, but because of a plot, because of a ploy, he ended up being killed innocently. 
with a death that was really hard for him, an experience that he had, it was hard for him. He, he struggled with the mission of Christ and why he was in jail and why Christ wasn't doing what he expected that he would do. That is, build this nation and destroy the Romans and defeat them and deliver him. And, and he, he struggled with doubt. Because, you know, you can just imagine if you were John the Baptist in, the, in jail, thinking, oh, Lord, I was faithful. I did everything you told me. And here I'm, I am languishing in jail. And, and it's, it's not happening like, like I thought it would. That's John the Baptist. <clears throat> and so this man who said that he must decrease while Christ must increase ended up dying. And so the story of the Messiah in different details, in different outstanding features and incidents is foretold in the lives of these seven Hebrew boys, these seven miracle children. An amazing, amazing story and a very special category of people that these people are in, you know, a very category, a special category of uh, miracle children that these boys, these men belong to, these seven miracle children. But the story is not finished. And this is where we just want to tie it together and, and make the application for us. Because God is not finished telling the story of His Son and the accomplishments of His Son. You know, we don't read of any other miracle births in the Bible, physically speaking. But there is another miracle birth in the Scriptures that was also typified by these miracle births that we just referred to. This miraculous birth is the new birth. That's what we started talking about earlier in the beginning, right? This is the great truth of the gospel. This is the great truth of the New Testament, the new birth. And the new birth and the elements of the new birth are also foretold in the miraculous physical births of these young men, but more especially so, of course, in the life of Christ. What do I mean? Just like God intervened to provide life, for each of these miracle births. In the new birth, God also intervenes to provide life. You see, the new birth is not just an expression. It's not just a cliche that we use to describe a change of mind that we have. And we say, well, this is the new birth. To many people, that's what it is. Well, that doesn't fit the pattern. In each instance, instance of the births that we saw, the miracle birth, God actually provided something that was not there in order for that birth to occur. The thing that God provided was life. Isn't that right? In the new birth, God provides something that is not naturally there. And that's how you have the new birth. The new birth is not about developing what you already have and just putting it in the right order, and you have the new birth. That's not a miracle. You with me? It's not working with the tools you already have at hand. You just align them a certain way, or you think a certain way, or you educate yourself a certain way, and you've accomplished the new birth. That is not a miracle. Anyone can do that. The miracle is to provide life. Seven times God did it in the Old Testament. The eighth and culminating time, which is the real thing, was providing life for His Son. And the purpose of that is so that he could give each and every one of us that life through the new birth. So don't underestimate the new birth because the new birth is no less miraculous than these miraculous births that occurred in the Old Testament. Galatians 4, 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of 
promise. There it is. As Isaac was, we are. He was that way physically, in how he was born physically. We are children of promise spiritually. Isaac received life. We receive life. Some people actually believe that in the new birth, you don't receive anything. It's all about changing some things that you already have. I have news for you. That is not the promise. You cannot be a child like Isaac of the promise that way. That is not the new birth. That's maybe, you know, uh, information. That's maybe uh, education. That's maybe changing your mind about things. That's all about what you already have. That is not a miracle. You know, these people try to have a child, I'm sure. All these uh, barren ladies with their husbands. Many times it didn't work. There was no miracle there. They tried to work with the tools that they had, with what they had available, and it did not work. The new birth is not about working with the tools that we already have. It's about providing a supernatural miracle, something that we do not possess, and God provides it as he did in all those instances and in all those times. We also can be born, and it's through our experience, brothers and sisters, in this new birth, that the story of the Messiah actually continues to be revealed and told and manifested. So God's not finished telling the story. In other words, we can also be in the club of these miracle children. You realize that? Not physically, of course, but this miracle that comes about as a supernatural intervention from God to overrule and override the natural process and work out something that he does by providing life where there was no life. That's what is told is in the story. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we're told, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Why is he a new creature? Because there is new life. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The focus in this verse is quite simply, it's about being and not about doing. How you are in Christ. The focus is if you are in Christ. That's a state of being. That state of being cannot come about except for a miracle from God. You realize that? There is no human ability that can bring about this state of being. God has to intervene by a miracle, just like he did in all these other instances, to accomplish this reality. And if you are in Christ, you are this new creature. God is concerned about your state of being, first and foremost, not just about your actions, not just about what you can or can't do, because it's more can't than can. And God knows that very well. That's why God does what we cannot do for ourselves. He provides this miracle. The reason why we need this life, quite simply, is as, as I said earlier, the life that God gave to humanity in Adam was lost. It became sin-infected, and it was, since that time, a dying life. Every child that comes into this world inherits the dying life of Adam. We just drop dead. You leave us long enough or short enough, predictable in every case, you'll drop dead. Why? The life that you have just does not last. It's infected with death. That's a, predict that's a statement that you can predict as far as all the children are not even born yet. We all know everybody's going to die. Why? Because Adam's life that God gave him became infected with death. And so what we need the most in order to overcome this problem of death is we need life, a new source of life. 
And that source of life does not come by us getting together and trying to solve our problem. It is not of human origin. It has to be a supernatural bestowal of life. That's what's told in all these stories. Seven times God did it. The eighth time he did it with his son, which is the real thing. To teach us a lesson. You think God was trying to tell us something in all of that? Most certainly. Can we see the pieces? Can we fit the puzzle together? So you do get something in the new birth. It's not just a cliche. It's not just language that the Bible uses. And as, we, as I said, we'll be exploring that a little bit more as we go along. This new life that God gives us comes directly from Him. The Bible says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's how we become children of God, through this amazing miracle. And so all of us can be miraculous children of God. We can be in this club, as I said, of these miracle children. So this is the question and the challenge of this study. Have you received that miracle of life or not? It's freely available to us. You know, God did not demand things from these people to accomplish it. They prayed, even some of them who kind of were half-hearted in their faith, some of them didn't even think to ask or pray. God accomplished that miracle. That miracle is free. If you believe, you don't have to do something to earn it. You don't have to do something to impress God, to show that you deserve it. It's not anything of the sort that many times we burden this reality with all these human elements. God gets the full credit, brothers and sisters, for this miracle. This is what the new birth is all about. So I want to challenge you with that. Uh, and if you know this and, and you've experienced this, God bless you for it. This is a good season. This is a good time at the camp to make a fresh recommitment, right? That's what we were all here for. We come apart so that we can, you know, focus on the spiritual things that matter. It's a good season. It's a good time to do so and to recommit and re-examine our relationship with Him and seek to take it deeper or higher, depending on which expression you want to use. All right, let's leave it at that. That's the challenge I want to leave you with. Let's close with a word of prayer. If you are blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.